Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education, those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. You know, young and change agents, young change agents go together like ham and pineapple on a pizza. I'm so excited that we're going to be talking with Margaret O'Brien today, the co-founder and CEO of Young Change Agents, a really significant Australian who is there in the trenches, working through the whole world of enterprise skills and entrepreneurial thinking and helping us to forge a new generation of people who are going out there to learn, to live, to lead and to work in a manner that thrives with adaptive expertise and self-efficacy. Margaret O'Brien, we're really excited. I can't wait. Well, let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you tell us a little bit about our Series 10 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. Over the past decade, the team from A School for Tomorrow has been working with hundreds of thousands of members of school communities across the world to think about the character of an excellent education. They've concentrated their learning about what makes a school thrive into a unique suite of digital survey tools called Thriving for students, teachers and schools. To learn how you can help your school measure how well it's achieving its purpose, go to aschoolfortomorrow.com forward slash thriving. Let's go. Phil, it's so wonderful to be with you. And I'm really looking forward to, to having a chat with our guest, Aunt Margaret, in a moment. But, uh, you know, I can't help but think that we're starting off this particular show and I'm, I'm just appalled at your choice of pizza toppings, Phil. I mean, how insulting it is to speak to a, to a half Italian. The notion of ham and pineapple on a pizza, I mean, that, that's just appalling. And, and you know what? You should be deported for that nonsense. Well, there you go. So I'm just wondering, is a half Italian, which half is it? Is it the left half where the, where the hand's doing the waving and the right oh. half isn't? Or, or is it the top or the bottom? It's all the passion. All the passion is Italian, mate. So anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get into our conversation with our guest for Series 10 of The Game Changers. Margaret, I'm going to ask you a question that we ask all of our Game Changers, and that is tell us a little bit about your story. How did you get to where you are today? Well, firstly, thank you for having me. My background actually is in business. So I went a very traditional route through university, got my first graduate role, worked my way through different organisations, both here in Australia and in the UK. Um, and I started to pick up on this idea that, you know, you could start to do good whilst working in business, you know, mostly through understanding corporate social responsibility and being involved in that in the organisation that I that I worked for in the UK. And it just made me really pleased that I could be doing something good in the world whilst also at work. And so when I started to understand this concept of social enterprise, which was the marrying of, of good and business together into one, I it was really a magical moment for me to recognise that is this something that I could be doing, you know, with my life? You know, could I marry these two loves? I really love business, but I also really love 
um, helping people and doing good things. So um, the fact that this is this was something and it, uh, and that I didn't find out about it until my 30s seemed a little bit crazy to me. I actually took a break from my commercial life and I'd run my own business as well and, and decided to do some volunteering over in Colombia. And as part of that process, I got to start working with young people and had the privilege to just be around them for a long, a lot of time, a long time. I went for six weeks and stayed three years. Mm-hmm. I focused mostly at the beginning on, you know, literacy programs, getting kids back into school. And through that process, I met all these amazing teenagers that would ask me things like, um, you know, Margaret, people see that we're poor. Why don't they help us? Or they would also, things that we were doing, like building literacy centers in, in poor communities, they would say, I didn't believe you know uh I didn't know if that would be possible in in my community to do that and so I, would, I asked myself the question really these young teenagers are very savvy very smart why do they not think like what's the mindset change that's required for them to think of themselves as change agents as as them to think of themselves as people that can do this because they absolutely have that inside of them and what is it that I could do that could make them believe that and so it dreamt up the idea initially of a week called Leadership Week where maybe I could bring in some role models, where we could do some vision mapping, where we could create some community maps and think about problems in, our, in the community that they wanted to address and solve and then give them ways to start thinking about that. And I knew that social enterprise was a powerful force, you know, to, to make change. And so gave them a one-pager in Spanish, of course, about a social enterprise. And because they had done those exercises in thinking about what vision they wanted for their community, thinking about the problems that they wanted to solve, when they were given the vehicle of social enterprise and the understanding of what that was, they just ran with it. And within a few hours, they were create, not only creating their social enterprise ideas, but going and signing people up, getting their first customers out in the community, validating and kind of pitching that those back to us as to how that would work. And it was just so powerful to me, their mindset change. That's the huge thing. And then really the social entrepreneurship program and, and what we taught them was that kind of skill set, tool set component, but their mindset's a big thing. And I think that's what I've really recognized. And it's just led me on the journey that I'm I'm on now because it was such a light bulb moment for me when I saw the change in them. We'll we'll talk about uh, your work, significant work with young change agents uh, very soon uh, and and, and what motivates you in that space. But uh, first of all, thank you very much for sharing with us and our listeners this journey that you have been on, a journey of your own kind of uh, social entrepreneurship discovery in many ways. When, when you got to Colombia and your intention was to stay for a short period of time, then it became three years. You eloquently shared with our listeners something that you saw in their capacity, their capacity to be so much more, and perhaps they were playing small because that's what the system allowed them to do or, or simply that's how they culturally, maybe that's how they you know, responded, but you saw something in them. But for you to do that, you also saw something in your capacity, in your capacity to, to not only support them in fundamentals, important fundamentals of basic literacy, but to then leverage that with their self-efficacy and their adaptability to move into this space of social entrepreneurship. What was it that you discovered about your capacity during those three years in Colombia that was about an ability to empower others? Yeah, it's really interesting. So when I went to Columbia as a volunteer, I didn't really know how I could be useful at all because um, I wasn't a doctor or an engineer. I didn't have any international development experience. I thought 
maybe how I could be helpful in some way, but I wasn't really sure. Um, I think when I got there, I recognized that it's really, you know, if you, if you've got empathy and you can create good relationships and you can see, you know, the people, what, what do people need from you? Then you can start having to think about how does the skills that I have relate to that problem. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what we, what we advocate for our young people today, right? Like identify problems, um, turn that into opportunity, think about what skills you can offer and turn that into something. It's just that mindset of, you know, is there something I can do here and, and listening and learning. And it took me really that first, I didn't do any of those programs, you know, for the first year. Uh, it was a very deep engagement in understanding on the ground, like really living that experience and understanding those problems and, and be, taking the time to understand the problem. And I think in terms of me understanding how to, you know, like the capacity building thing, for me, that made sense. I guess I draw on that from business mm -hmm. because the way that in business you scale business is by identifying people that have talent and giving them what they need to thrive and you know, whether that's supporting them with marketing support or finance support or whatever. So that's how you grow a business. And so it makes sense to me that if I could find amazing people doing good things on the ground in Colombia. So there was like a lovely lady that had been running a school in the front of her house for 20 years, but not able to thrive because, you know, she didn't have that extra, extra layers of support. So if I could just provide that extra piece for her, which is like the literacy program, then those kids that are coming to her house every day that she feeds and keeps safe could then also get to go back to school. Had you sp spoken Spanish before you had arrived there? No, no, okay. only, only two, only tourist Spanish. And I had okay. to learn along the way and it's so still, it's not at all perfect. So, so there's a huge challenge for me. <laughs> so that first year you're, 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 did by the sounds of it an enormous amount of really understanding and developing your cultural awareness uh, and the nuance of the of the needs in that space and and what you could do. But you're also pushed out of your comfort zone because there was a language barrier that you were working through as well. There's it was every every kind of barrier. Like you know, there's like language and culture, and you know, mm -hmm. even they say there, for example, um, you know, with leadership there, that leaders should sort of show the way and be very kind of directive. You know, mm -hmm. if you're shown to be as a leader there, where you're kind of asked very consultative, which I would try to be, obviously, mm -hmm. then it, it appears like you don't know what you're doing. So you're trying to even learn that kind of different style. Um, you know, that you've got that a whole cultural way of getting things done and doing things in different in different communities. So um, do you have, yeah, definitely very interesting. Do you have any insights then? We, we, there's a lot of people that listen to this particular podcast and um, they're not just people in education, but they're predominantly, you know, people in, in, in schools supporting school, uh, young people and parents and, and colleagues. But we also have a lot of school leaders. Mm -hmm. Is there some insights that you can share with school leaders about how to thrive in your discomfort zone? Mm. Yes, <laughs> I am a big believer in, I think, the way that I think around in that design thinking style mm -hmm. where I think about those problems, think about solutions and trial things, but in small ways where I try and reduce the risk. Mm -hmm. So that helps me to thrive because I don't stress, I, I don't set my you know, huge goals for everything being successful. And I think, you know, you that allows you to know that some things are going to fail and some are going to work. And the things that are going to work are the right ones because the right, everyone's, you know, they're going to gravitate towards those good things. And then those other things aren't going to work. But you're not setting yourself up as, as failure being huge. I think that's what I tried in Columbia. Like, I, 
I tried a lot of things. I talk about things that really worked, but I also tried a lot of things that didn't work. And and so it's it's about for me, you know, I guess having a few things on the on the go and and trying to think about a few things and allowing yourself to make have some of those not work and some of them work and then celebrate those things. What's an example of that, Margaret? What's an example of one of the things that you've been doing either in Columbia or, or since, probably since, that you tried and for the best will in the world, you just never would do it again? I think we've tried our program in different contexts. I think there's some certainly like, you know, all gung-ho about making sure that we can reach every single young person. And, you know, some young people need other services before young change agents. Like we are one part of the puzzle. So I think it's recognising that sometimes it's not all going to work. Like I've cried after our program sometimes, you know, like it hasn't always worked. I can't guarantee that it's going to work with every young person and meet them where they are. And I think that's something you've really learned over the last six years is, is that there's, we are one piece of the puzzle. It's, it's interesting though, because you judge your success, don't you, by how you are in the moment, particularly when you come from the world of business, you know, you're on a 12 month cycle. At, at its longest, you're really on, these days I reckon you're on three-month cycles, you're on 90-day cycles of trying to work out, is this working? Is this, the seeds that you plant with a 15, 16, 17-year-old, they might not germinate until they're in their 50s or 60s or 70s. You know, it's sort of my, my sense about the timelines that they're working with, it's, it's you know, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? For teachers, like we get quite immediate feedback because we do surveys, but I imagine in schools the teachers don't get, you know, they get a survey at the end of the day and and you'll be surprised that on those surveys, the really quiet young people who maybe didn't seem that engaged actually write the most amazing feedback. And I, I bet you that teachers miss out on getting that beautiful Yeah, feedback. well, we, 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 we mistake quiet for inactive at our peril as educators and we need to recognise there are different personality types and the quiet, thoughtful ones who are doing a lot of processing, as, you know, as I said, that, that maybe those seeds will germinate um, later there's all sorts of um, good stuff that uh, you know we've, we've learned in education about receiving feedback uh, teachers can be quite gun shy when it comes to feedback you know they, they quite often they can get 99 brilliant pieces of constructive feedback and then somebody tees off at them and then that's the piece they'll take home and it'll gnaw away at their sense of who they are and so on sort of and we we need to bulletproof them that to that and the only way to do it is 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 to face it because the more often you've been criticized the more often you've woken up the next day and everything's all right then you, in, in time you come to put it in perspective i want to i want to come if we can to the work that you've been doing at young change agents i want to pick pick apart if i can the notion of a social enterprise you talked about empathy and good relationships you talked about connecting skills to context, about converting problem to opportunity. You talked about cultural awareness. What characterises a social enterprise? Yeah, so for me, a social enterprise is an organisation that at its heart has a social, environmental, economic purpose and that it trades to for that mission. It's, that's its reason for existing. And it's, it's kind of compass, you know, it gives it a, like that direction and you always come back to that. It doesn't exist to like what I what I was always you know in before social enterprise which is really to make money and um it's it's it does make money um young change agents makes money and we reinvest that um and we have the ability to choose where that money goes you know collectively my team can choose whether we reinvest in in tools and technology and additional programs and additional opportunities for different um parts of our community 
um, to be able to participate. So that's it's a beautiful thing to do with the with any surplus that we get. Okay, so so there's that there's that overwhelming social context, and if I can drag in here a couple of sort of things that former game changers have talked to us about. So Conrad Wolfram, when he was talking about the difference between maths and computation, talks about taking students seriously and getting them to do real-world problem-solving using computation as early as possible instead of just doing maths that computers can do. You know, Santiago Rincon Gallardo talks about solving social problems through the medium of education and about education itself being the vehicle for equity um, uh, throughout the world. These are big challenges that face the world. One of the things that characterises them and I think characterises you and other people that we talk about is that you recognise the value of young people and their inherent possibility. What do you think that this model of learning that you're building through Young Change Agents, what do you think that this model of learning could do in a school setting? How can it, what what, what characteristics do you think are transportable across to a system? Because what you're doing is, uh, is it's an immersive educational experience it's uh it's put in get into a context work through a cycle and then take it back so what are they taking back what can teachers be taking back what can schools learn from what you've learned about um, social enterprise as a vehicle for transformation well i think you know every school talks about every child every child is important every child can learn and i think that that social enterprise is so beautiful because every child has a different lived experience and so what they can draw on, it doesn't matter where we go, our team goes, every child will give us a different experience that they've had in their life or a different way that they see the world. And because of that uniqueness of every child, they see problems differently, they come up with ideas differently, and so they have something to offer. And once they tap into that passion, all those other subjects that they're learning, English, math, science, digital technologies, everything starts to make sense because they can say, okay, This is how they all come together around something that I believe in, that I'm passionate, that I am in a unique position to solve, or I and my team, or I and my peers. And so they feel really heard, they feel really connected, and they also feel like the rest of the school is more relevant. I think that's what's exciting, and I've seen it so many times, and I think teachers, like as soon as teachers are in it and they see it, they get it, um, and they get excited about it, and they just want to do more and more as well because it, it does speak to that whole of child and, and every child matters and every child is great at something. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating listening to you talk. There's a lot of the work that we've done on character development and the research that we've done around it. And then there's a stage of that, which we call the journey from me to you to us. And it's normal and natural and developmental. Little children, the world is all about them and their immediate context, which is their family. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes about you, which is about friends. And then at some point, Typically, 15, 16, 17, there's an awakening of a sense of a world beyond this one, out of which a sense of purpose might be generated. What's the best way for schools, do you think, to empower their students to believe that there is a purpose for them and that it is connected to the well-being of others and, and it is connected to the thriving of the world beyond their own concerns? Yeah, just on that point that you made before I answered that, there's a great, um, when I first started, there's a great UNICEF report on this that actually links in that that special period of that kind of disconnection between your parents and, and the world for, and creating your own identity. And such a, for me, it's such an important time to connect with community 
because if you if you think of yourself like even with the Instagram generation everything right like which is they are you know you think of yourself as you as part of your family and your parents are your biggest role models and then you suddenly look to other to other um, children for reference points but if your self sense of identity is just linked to me and what I look like and what I say and what how many likes I got on Instagram versus if you create your identity linked to your community I think that helps really build resilience. So I think what you just said, I love what you're just talking about about that because that's uh, that's a bit I'm really interested in about that that social enterprise actually helps build connection to community and resilience. So that's a really big part. I think how do how do schools on your second question on your real question, um, you know, I, how I, I, I pretty I, I pretty pretty much enjoyed your first answer. So we're getting <laughs> two for the price of one here. That's great. <laughs> I think um, I think you know how do schools help. Was it how do schools help young people understand that they can um, that they can have purpose and that they can be yeah and that they can find that sense of purpose and that and that they can connect with it and and more importantly that that sense of purpose is beyond themselves because as yeah. you know there's you, you can't live a life that is worthwhile and that is a good life unless it's it's fundamentally about other people you know you can live a selfish life um, and you can have stuff but from what we can tell everywhere and all about it's a pretty hollow sort of life you know so how do we help people connect to that sense of other through purpose um, at school yeah I don't know if I know 100% how to do that but what I see organically happening in our programs is when you put kids in groups together when they do the community mapping exercise they put what they like what they don't like and what they wish for in their community and what happens at that point is is that the young people will share things. You know, they do it through, um, they draw pictures and they put, you know, little thumbs and, um, you know, like little likes and dislikes sort of Facebook thumbs. And from there, they have they open up these conversations that perhaps these young people have not had with each other. So, for example, one person might share that their mum died of cancer. One person might share that they have a single parent. One pe- person might share that their, you know, that their house throws out a lot of food every week you know food waste it could be it could be anything but you start to hear them share those stories and then through that you get a lot of empathy building with their friendship group you know I have some of these teams get up and present and they're like um, you know really wanting to support a team member maybe someone with autism maybe someone that's been through something and so I think through that creation of empathy maybe they personally haven't haven't at that point expressed something that they want to focus on, but through in that group of four or five, they've started to build up an interest in something, started to think of something outside of themselves. And I think that's probably what I'd say is just by doing these exercises, you'll have that organic, well, I guess it's I guess a little bit manufactured because you're doing an exercise, but it, it feels a little bit more organic in terms of that empathy building amongst their peers. So much uh, of what you're sharing with us here today has a, has, a, has a real synergy to the work that we do at A School for Tomorrow, where the starting point is about the inclusion agency that you're talking about there, which is this deep sense of belonging. How do we help young people to identify very early on and help them in, um, be able to then step into their agency, to step into their contribution uh, and, and, and then ultimately step into how they can challenge things as well, uh, you know. But we have to do that first by making sure that they feel that they're known, that they're loved, that they're seen and that they're valued. And, and I love how you're using that first stage of design thinking of empathy 
just to simply listen to understand, not listen to respond, you know, and that we, we enter into that powerful space of really wanting to wrestle with it. I'm also hearing you share with us and our listeners that your programs are designed to equip young people with the necessary tools to think creatively, to build skills around critical thinking, and of course, the power of communication. And we know that communication, you touched upon Instagram, but communication fundamentally is one of the biggest skills we know that they, they're going to need in, in, in today's world, you know, and, and tomorrow's. I think about all those different things, Margaret, and I think about the pressures that schools are under. They're compelled to do so much these days, you know, schools. They have to be everything for everyone. How then do we help school leaders even convince them and systems to actually value learner agency and voice, inclusion agency that you're talking about there as well? How do we get them to understand that that should be the business of schools? Mm, yes. Well, I, I mean, I think that schools... Every school that I have spoken to is is on a pathway to that if, if yeah. they're not really embracing that. I think that although it might seem to people outside of the school system, and I'm not in the system but I visit within the system all the time, um, it might appear that we're behind, but I actually think that schools are making a lot of headway around Australia. You know, we work, there's a, thou, a, we, a thousand schools, which is, you know, as you know, quite a lot of schools Australia do one or more of young change agents programs now and so for me that's amazing you know that's the mainstream coming along along you know like when we started six mm -hmm. years ago I'd have to knock on the most innovative principals doors and mm -hmm. you know on the back of their door would be you know big hairy audacious goals get kids doing design thinking but it's actually now becoming more mainstream and this is the really exciting time I think this is um, where schools are, you know, the whole thing's changing because, you know, universities are looking at different ways to get into university, which mm -hmm. makes, I think, the whole, yeah, it's a whole of ecosystem piece. So we talk a lot about um, creating entrepreneurial school models rather than programs. Mm -hmm. So what are those four pillars? They are ecosystems. So how do you break down the walls between school and industry? Um, you know, how do you create the environment and culture for entrepreneurial education at your school? We've got a bit of a checklist for schools to kind of against these four pillars. But the other ones are so ecosystem, school capacity building. So how do we bring educators and provide them with everything they need to, to, to make this happen? Obviously, lifelong learning. So looking at it as progression, not a one-off program. So, you know, we, we have models that sit right across from year five to year 12 and they have different lenses, you know, product lenses, digital service themed things so tapping into different stgs so you can fit within different subjects like geography and health pd ph health pd what is it called now it was called it was called oh, PA physical when I was education called. Yeah. yeah exactly yeah. so you so you're aligning it and you're finding ways to get it into the timetable that doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily mean that everything has to be carved out into new things yeah I, I love what i'm hearing there first of all i want to say thank you very much for recognizing that there are so many schools and educators doing it already yeah. Um, and yes, we're all on some type of continuum. You know, some of us are, are at the beginning part of this, this journey and seeing its value. Others ha have been drinking from that Kool-Aid for many years now. And, you know, and they're, they're, they're over in another space where they're already working in an ecosystem mindset of, of working with industry, working with communities. Um, you know, working with not-for-profits, working for profits, you know, uh, looking at all types of business uh, that they can engage with, universities, TAFEs, apprenticeship organisations and so on. What I feel is a challenge, though, for some of these schools because of the busyness of, of 
what it is that they do. Um, by the way, I also love the fact that you're you're illustrating that it's about an alignment to a curriculum, not an add-on. You know, like so. So there's so much in the Australian curriculum for those people who are, with schools that are using it that really speak to uh, integrating entrepreneurial thinking and skills so beautifully you know across the board and and using design thinking and, and social entrepreneurship as a as a as an achievement standard outcome and linking it explicitly can definitely happen um, you know at the moment of school for tomorrow we're doing an enormous amount of work with catholic education south australia in this exact space you know we are working with them to develop their own coined limitless uh entrepreneurial model from from prep all the way through to, to year 12. Uh, so it's really fascinating hearing you talk about it, but I want to come back to the first point you said there, and it was about ecosystems. How can we continue to empower our leaders within schools and systems to be open to looking outwards, outside of their campuses, and creating the space needed to build the partnerships with industry where it becomes a true ecosystem and not just this kind of insular approach that, yes, we have an expertise in education and learning, but then there's this whole other world out there that also has an expertise in change and development and growth, uh, which is learning. Mm. How, do we, how do we help them see the value and create the space needed to build these partnerships? Yeah, I mean, I think about this a lot because I've come from industry and then mm. I'm now in schools and now I'm, my child just started prep this year, so three days ago. So um, I, yeah, I think a lot about how, um, especially as a parent, like a school has industry in their school every day, you know, <laughs> the parents. <laughs> so I think it's tapping into, um, I guess, thinking about how you can tap more into that alumni and parent network. It's, it's private schools do it, independent schools do it really well. Um, you know, my, my old school always contacts me to be you know become a living book or whatever I am like you know tapping in uh, to give people inspiration and things to go into different sectors so it's also about saying how do we think of a school and its staff as being wider than the employees it's what we do as a not-for-profit social enterprise like I just I think you know if it just counted young change agent staff we would have 14 staff but I actually have hundreds of volunteers and so how do you how do you extend your school um, outside of your PNC, which is generally a voluntary board and, and things like that. How do you extend that to your volunteer network of, of industry expertise using the, your alumni, using your parent networks, um, using other interested local businesses, tapping into your local council. So the local council's job is, you know, is to is to grow their local economy and have a thriving local community. So um, we work with a bunch of local councils as well who sponsor and support local schools and their job is to then bring in industry so then maybe it isn't that you need to create your own industry officer or industry person within the school but how do you link up with the the council to do that I think that there are a lot of ways but it is also really tricky that's why I think Young Change Agents has been able to like find a little niche in schools where we can also help facilitate some of that because schools, especially public schools, are very under-resourced in that area. I think it does add a lot of value. But, you know, when there's only one careers advisor for a 1,000 type students, it's, mm. it's very difficult. Mm. Um, and I've seen some schools that have had that extra person hired that are just doing so much better than other schools. You know, that one person who's like the partnerships person or Mm -hmm. and I'm like and I think to myself why doesn't every school have one of these (laughs) because this person's 
making real change in this school for these kids, you know, linking into industry and um, connecting. But again, I guess that's, an, you know, it's the expense, isn't it? Yeah, I'd, look, I'd, I'm, not, I'm not sure it is always about expense. When the simple equation in schooling is that there is no more time and there is no more money. There just, there just isn't. So the, mm. the, the real question is about priority. Um, and, and, and I think my, my response to that, that notion of that one person, that one person exists in every school. The real question is, who took a risk to support that person and to give that person a chance so that when they innovated, when they tried things, when things didn't go quite as planned, when it got a bit messy, when et cetera, et cetera, that they weren't jumped on, that they were encouraged and supported and empowered along the way. Um, I want to talk to you about risk because you said something really interesting a little a little while back, which you talked about your, your approach to managing risk. And you said, you want to break it down into smaller pieces along the way so that if something goes wrong, you're not com- confronted with the complete system failure of everything. It's just one small piece at a time. Talk to me about your risk appetite. Talk to me about the adventure of your life. Yeah, the adventure of my life. I think with risk, with your starting young change agents, I'll tell you that story. I decided that if to validate young change agents, I said, if we can get five, four or five pilot schools that pay, or actually two schools and two community groups that pay, and the young people have a good experience, the educators want it, the system's interested in it, and and he wanting to hear the outcomes. And I'm not stepping on anyone else's toes to do that. Like nobody else is doing it that I'm trying to replace. Then you know if that if it's worthwhile, then I will leave my job and do this. And so I did give myself some real specific you know, real specific things to de-risk that for me because ultimately, yeah, I just thought it's not, I'm in a very fortunate position that I obviously had a good education and I feel like I can get a job. So it is a bit of a de-risk for me that I think if it doesn't work, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'll go and get another job. So that I am in a fortunate position in that, in that respect. But also you recognise the need to turn problem into opportunity because a lot of people you talk to, all they see is problem. Mm-hmm. Problem after problem after problem after problem. Yeah. And so it, this is this is and you know the adventure of your life, the way you portray it. This is not about one full hard step followed by a reckless jump followed by you know a leap into the unknown sort of thing. This is a very calculated, well considered, rational approach to managing opportunity and to and to put together a scope and sequence that's actually doable. Has that always been in your makeup or have you, have you learned that along the way? Yeah, so my dad was in the military, which sounds like the opposite, right? But I think the thing about the military is you move every two years. So you leap into this new world every two years as a child and you have to have that belief that you will start in a new school, you will make some friends, it will be okay. Like you nearly need to get yourself into that mindset. Because if you're in that mindset of, I don't know anyone, no one's going to be my friend, I'm going to hate this, then it's really that self, it's self-perpetuating. So you've you got to go in with a smile and, and try your best and, and say hello to people. And naturally I felt like if I do these steps, then this might happen. You're kind of setting yourself a little bit of a hypothesis and a little bit of hope there as well. But you're sort of setting yourself a, a process where like I, I believe this can because it also has happened before. So you're also taking that experience that, you know, if I do these things, experience tells me that that could have a positive outcome. And so I think that's what I've done. And that helps when you go traveling. Like I moved to the UK, I moved to Colombia. 
I went on student exchange living with a Muslim family in Indonesia for three for three months after school. You know, these things are essentially, you know, if I give it a if I if I try if I give it a go and if I give it my best go, then I'll be happy and I can try. And you know, I think if you try, things can work. They don't always work, but you I think you can recognize you've given them a good go. Yeah, I, I, there's so much in this, you know, there's so much inspiration in what you're sharing in, in your story. And I'm glad that Phil asked the question about your risk appetite, uh, because I, I love that you're sharing with everyone your capacity to remain forever curious. Uh, you're not prepared to stand still. And that movement is, is power, you know. Uh, and as humans, our evolution is because of our endeavour and our, our, our capacity to never stand still and want to continue to grow and evolve. Uh, so thank you very much for, for sharing a little insight about what makes Margaret O'Brien really tick there. You're also someone who elevates young people and tries to recognise them uh, through your great endeavour in the last few years with Bop, who's a very close friend of ours, and of course, Tech Girls Movement Foundation around the Teens in Business Awards. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful uh, uh, concept that really celebrates young people as they would be celebrated in industry, uh, you know? Uh, and so the, the connection there is profound. I bring that up because one of your, the partners and the initiative in that, of course, is the Tech Girls Movement. And, and I know that you're a huge, huge advocate for girls and women in social, in social entrepreneur space. How can we, in our schools, in our homes, in our society, encourage more girls and women to enter and lead in this important space of social, cultural and environmental entrepreneurship? Well, that's a good question. And I do know the answer from the girls because we have done co-design on this. So the girls will tell me we did co-design in four states. The girls will tell me that the challenges that they have being young entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs, that they firstly just don't know what it is. (laughs) So they need to have more understanding and early on in their life as to what it is as an opportunity Two, that they need the confidence that their ideas will be good enough so they need to be able to have a sounding board they need people to talk about ideas and obviously they need to come up with them but they need to then have sounding boards and ways to think that through and think and de-risk it that's a big thing they talk about like you know is it easy for me to go get a job with government or Deloitte or somebody or start my own business you know do I have the confidence or the risk appetite so definitely building that up And then the other two are role models. So if I don't know anyone that does this, how am I going to learn from somebody? So giving people those role models. And the final one is just how do I get started? And so I think that that's really where, you know, getting started in the sandpit type environment where you are de-risking it. So really touches on those two. So I think, you know, the programs at school for girls is about giving them the understanding that it could be something they could do, giving them confidence because they're building that through doing, you know, giving them role models. So showcasing other women that are doing things um, from different cultures, Indigenous women, bringing them in as role models and coaches. Yeah. So not, I mean, not every young girl thinks that I'm representative of them mm-hmm. or one of my teams are making sure we've got that diversity and yeah, just giving them a go. And I think we'll find that, as you said, like entre- entrepreneurship skills is, is the future of work too. It's mm-hmm. not just entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that, you know, all of that beautiful research done by a foundation for young Australians and also through other organisations like Deloitte Access Economics tells us about the importance of enterprise skills into the future and that something like 63% of all jobs by 2030 will be kind of soft skill or enterprise skill intensive. And these, and and most people, to be honest, would argue that that's true today if you want to be a manager. You know, you, 
it might be fine as an entry level to not have them um, if you get that role, but, you know, definitely to be a manager, you need them. So it doesn't matter if you're thinking about, you know, this or my child wants to be something other than an entrepreneur, they're still going to need these skills. Margaret, final question. What's your personal sense of the future? How do you see yourself evolving as a future fit and future ready contributor? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I obviously um, at the moment I'm fully committed to seeing young change agents grow to to reaching one and a half million young people and also giving young people outside of Australia the opportunity, you know, as as we did with it over in Colombia in, in its very early infancy. But on top of that, I'm really interested in other systems change in Australia. I have a working group around reimagining grants in Australia with 100 people working on that at the moment and contribute to that obviously to the wider national social enterprise system in Australia at you know including adults and yeah I'm really really interested in helping people better articulate the problem that don't have a voice so I guess the other area that I'm interested in the future is say for example I myself am a cancer survivor how do we get more cancer survivors engaged in the process of identifying the problems during that process and and having a voice to contribute to um, development of solutions, but that could equally be domestic violence survivors, all, all sorts of other different um, community groups that I don't think still get uh, enough voice. Yes, well, there's like two of us in the conversation who are cancer survivors. Um, I have no doubt that if you applied your prodigious talents to that area, you would achieve just as much co-design of... Uh, outstanding solutions that can encourage people to grow, to develop, to believe in themselves and, and to emerge as thriving in their world. Thank you so much for joining us today on Game Changers. Really, really worthwhile experience for us as we sit here and we learn from you about what's really making a difference in the world of social uh, enterprise and how to connect with kids in such a meaningful way that validates and values their voice agency and advocacy in the world. Thank you, Margaret. No, thank you for what you are both doing to, to bring all these different, I guess, case studies to life, opportunities to life for everyone. So thank you for having me. It's been awesome, Margaret. Thank you very much. What about you just let our listeners know how they can get in touch with young change agents? Okay, well, yes, you can go to our website, which is youngchangeagents.com. You can also find us on the full spectrum of social media, so LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And, uh, yeah, reach out. We're very approachable. And my, my phone number's even on the website, so just go for it. Thank you so much. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.